Hello and welcome to another episode of Justice Rising, a podcast where we explore how we can work towards liberation, healing, and transformation one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Samantha Yannity. What does it look like to experience and live out God's mercy? And how do we extend that mercy to and from the prison cells? On this week's episode, I sit down with Jennifer Kelly, Executive Director of JRJI, Jesuit Restorative Justice Initiative Northwest, as she talks about her experience working with people behind the cells, modeling for us the example of how to live out restorative justice practices. Thanks for joining us. Jennifer, tell us what all you do. You've been doing a lot lately. Where are you at currently? Well, first of all, thanks for having me today, Samantha. Um, so Jesuit Restorative Justice Initiative Northwest does a number of things, but at the heart of our work, our programs behind bars. Beginning in August, I was able to get a new badge that has allowed me back inside. So I'm doing a lot of pastoral work and pastoral care with men at Monroe Correctional Complex. And I've also started a new program called ENTER at Kent Regional Justice Center for Women. And that's a program that I um, meet with women one-on-one in booths where I'm on the phone. and We have plexiglass between us because at the Justice Center, they're not yet having group meetings. So I'm three days a week now in correctional facilities and the rest of the time working on other aspects of the organization. We're still in the founding stages. So what is, I guess, the fundamental difference between when you work with the men and when you work with the women? Wow, good question. Um, I would say that with the women, there's a certain emotional vulnerability that comes more readily. When I was getting ready to start the program in Kent, they were looking for programs for both youth who were just aging into the adult population and for the women. And actually, I was going to do a little of both, but things have changed with uh, the youth system right now. So there aren't as many at the Justice Center. But what they had warned me about was they said, we don't think you should meet with more than three or four women per day because their stories are so painful and it will be a lot. And they mentioned that I would be meeting women who had been trafficked Um, who've experienced all kinds of violence and abuse and domestic abuse, um, as well as usually are separated from children, and that it would be a lot to listen to. And in fact, that's very much been the case. It's a great, I I find the women incredibly resilient and courageous, and I really stand in awe of them. In fact, I know I'm not going to get this quote exactly right, but each week when I sit with them, I keep remembering something that Father Greg Boyle from Homeboy Industries said when I was at one of his talks once. He said something like, it's amazing that we judge people for how they live their lives or how they carry their burdens rather than standing in awe that they carry them at all. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not an exact quote. He said it better than that, but that's how I feel every week when I sit with the women Um, A lot of them were forced out of dysfunctional homes as early as 13, 14, and were living on the streets or bouncing around in foster homes. Um, With the men, um, backgrounds of trauma and abuse and neglect and violence and 
um, addiction in the home, those things are also common, but it takes a lot longer for those stories to be revealed. And there's a certain culture in prison for men and how they're expected to carry themselves. And so when they first come to our programs, for many, they'll say it's the first time since they've been locked up that they're sitting in a room where a space is kind of created and held where they feel free to talk about themselves. So what I've noticed sometimes with the men is we spend a little more time dealing with intellectualizing, which I never judge. I totally can understand. Uh, We go inside, whether I'm on my own or with a team, they don't know us. Why should they trust us right away? And so sometimes with the men, they're speaking from their heads, maybe occasionally, you know, quoting Bible verses a lot or, um, Mm. And it's really take, interesting. The mm-hmm. intellectualizing is the, is the difference. Yep. Yep. But then what can happen is we get to the stories of their own experience, often of being victims long before they victimized anybody else. And it can be incredibly poignant. And on our JRJI retreats with men behind bars, there's a lot of tears there as well. And a lot of Kleenex going around. It just mm-hmm. is a more delicate process getting there. And we never, we don't ever create situations where we're trying to force people to be revelatory or to emote. I mean, our goal is to create a safe space for people to engage at the level they're comfortable, but it always feels like an honor and a privilege at how authentically so many people show up. I'm really sitting with all of this because I think what's, um, what's interesting I'm not trying to gender stereotype, but I feel like there's a different, when you describe both um, sets of individuals, how the men that you've interacted with have processed things and how the women have. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I've heard was that um, it seems like women, the women that you interact with are often incarcerated because they're, I hear victims in both scenarios, but I hear primarily things like they got incarcerated because they were, you know, victims of trafficking or for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But it feels like with the men that you interact with that, that victimization started primarily when they were younger and then through maybe through socialization, they became the perpetrator later on. So it's kind of a different cycle. I don't know. Do you see it that way or is it different? Well, in in all cases, I tend to find that people that are behind bars have had incredible amounts of trauma from a very early age, usually. Otherwise, there could be extensive mental health issues or something like that. But I think when we look at how boys and girls are socialized. And I also want to recognize gender spectrum here, but traditionally in our culture, how we label boy behavior and girl behavior. Um, Men are socialized not to cry, not to feel. um, And in prison, that masculinity, toxic masculinity gets amplified. So you Mm. hear a lot of slur words around men that aren't perceived as being tough and masculine enough. So I think it's not surprising that in men's prisons, you meet a lot more violence, men who are incarcerated because of acting out um, violence against somebody else, another person. Whereas 
it seems a lot of the time in, in county where I'm meeting women or when I was at Purdy one time, meeting women who have uh, committed nonviolent offenses, more check forgery, a um, lot of drug offenses, prostitution. So there are violent offenses occasionally, but it just seems that we are socialized to act out our trauma differently. And mm. I definitely see that reflected in the incarceration, incarcer- uh, incarceration system. Um, in both cases, though, um, the trauma base and the way society has failed the people that I meet is abundantly clear. I meet a lot of people who spent years in foster care. And many who are experiencing generational incarceration because parents were incarcerated. Um, and of course, a lot of racism, institutional racism that they've been affected by, systemic racism, classism, poverty. Um, it's, the list is endless of the deficits and, and disadvantages that most people have experienced before being locked up. And one of the things that crosses my mind, Samantha, and you've probably seen this, is once in a while, we see in the news a really egregious case of abuse of a child or a series of children in foster care. And it gets a huge reaction. And society wants to have the head of DSHS or the particular social worker involved and just cannot believe, and and rightly so, that these children have been failed. And what happens, I think, often cases is that those children grow up and the intervention didn't happen when they were children. And society forgets that that's the very person who were at 10 years earlier. We'd be appalled at what they are living with as a child, but they're 18. Suddenly they've aged out of the system. They're adults. And now we more readily blame them for their trauma, for their behavior. And rather than offering restorative and transformational experiences and healing and education and the resources needed. We lock people up and we talk about punishment and we blame them. Wow. I keep saying, I said it sitting with all of us because this is a lot to digest because I don't think that we address trauma. I don't think our, our systems are trauma informed. I think that's a huge part of the issue. And I don't think I don't think we understand what happens to people and why they act out. They might act out or might be responding or in survivor mode, like what happens when folks are in survivor mode. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm wondering, like when they enter into these retreat spaces, what happens? Does this, um, do these spaces open up a pathway for healing? They do. And that's really what JRJI is predicated on. So Jesuit Restorative Justice Initiative here in the Northwest were inspired by and learned greatly from JRJI in LA, founded by Father Mike Kennedy. And I spent a year traveling down once a month to travel with their team to prisons in California. And it was abundantly clear that their Ignatian retreat program behind bars is all about using Ignatian spirituality and welcoming all in an interfaith context using Ignatian spirituality and meditation to offer opportunities for healing and transformation. And that's definitely our goal. And there's so many extraordinary, um, what should I say, like the foundational elements that Father Mike seeded into the program that are just sheer brilliance and that 
in witnessing them uh, was profound for me in bringing them back to Washington State. And so there's a few things. So first of all, uh, JRJI in California taught me and believes that healing doesn't happen in our brain or intellectually, mm-hmm. as I already mentioned, intellectual intellectualization. But healing happens in in our memories, in our story, mm-hmm. and in our feelings. So um, one of the things that our, we do on our retreats, we get together, we start the day, we actually have a lot of fun, we have music, we often have some joke telling, <laughs> but eventually we have a theme and we get into small groups. And in a retreat day, we have two cycles of meditation where a gospel-based story has been transformed to be a meditation, usually written by Father Mike Kennedy, sometimes other meditations that we use, but a gospel-based meditations that's been kind of tweaked and transformed to reflect the lives of people who've somehow gotten caught up in the carceration system. Could be someone who's committed a crime or a mother whose son or daughter's incarcerated. And they're very deep meditations accompanied by music. And so these meditations are led silently. And when the meditation is finished, um, all the participants place their hands, palms up on their knees. And we have uh, little containers of scented lavender oil. Mm. And one person in the circle, and we usually, it's always one of the men or women, we ask them if they'll be the blesser, which is really interesting. It's a powerful, they look shocked and moved, like I can bless. Bless. And one of the things we're saying is, yes, you can. So when the meditation is over, we all place our hands, palms up on our knees, and a person just silently kind of put some oil on each person's hands. We invite people to rub our hands together and to maybe bring our hands up to our nose and take in the scent of the oil, place our hands on our heart. And I have to add the caveat, of course, this is not happening during the pandemic, but this is what was happening prior and we'll come back someday. Um, And part of the reason for that is that Father Mike, another kind of principle of JRJI is recognizing that prisons lack beauty and beauty is healing. Mm-hmm. And the scent of the oil um, and the feel of it, it's remarkable to watch how much it means to people because it is beautiful. So then people receive that blessing, um, take in the scent and the feel, and then they're invited to pick up um, their journals and a pencil and a question. Mm-hmm. And the question is always based on the meditation and it's based on memory. So the questions will start with, I remember. And it might say, one of our a really powerful meditation is called you are a good man or you are a good woman or you are a good person, depending on the context, we use different words. But so it might say, I remember a time I was told that I'm a good person or I'm a good man, I'm a good woman. And then I remember, I remember. And the participants are taught to start writing immediately and not to sit and think. And if, as they, and to write out the sentence first, just to get the flow going, I remember a time And then if they get to the end of the sentence, not to stop writing, if nothing's there yet, just to write the words, I remember, I remember, I remember Mm. until something happens. And Samantha, it's extraordinary. It's like a zipper often for people. It opens up something. And so people just start writing and writing and writing. When all of that is finished, we then have the period of small group sharing. And people are always invited to share anything that they would like to share. No sharing is forced. And what's remarkable is to experience the reverence with which people listen to one another. 
Um, so each person in the circle is invited to share if they'd like. Um, we have little um, battery powered candles in the middle mm-hmm. of the circle. And so whoever is speaking picks up the light and holds the light while they speak. Oh, wow. And they either put it back down in the middle of the circle for someone else to pick it up or they hand it to someone. But just we try to use as many symbols as mm-hmm. possible to confer dignity um, to our participants. Um, we usually have about three go-rounds. We, we first share, each person shares what happened for them during the meditation that they want to share. Then based on listening, we don't have dialogue. We don't give one another advice or feedback, but we simply have a second sharing that would be, has anything else been triggered in me based on listening? And then we usually go around one more time with something like, um, is there a gift or a grace I received by listening, by speaking and listening in this circle? And the small group leaders can tailor the questions. Um, but it's just remarkable what happens in the in the circles. And the number of times we've been told, I haven't been able to talk like this and be real since I've been locked up. And so it's, it's um, that's our goal is to help people to get into their memories. And I did mention that you are a good man, good person, good woman meditation, because from what I've seen in many ways, it's the most powerful. It was brilliant on Father Mike's part to make this kind of a, a basis, a baseline that the retreats begin with people because many have ceased to believe there's anything good about them. But when they go to their memories, very often there's a memory there. It could Mm -hmm. be a neighbor. It could be a teacher. Um, But invariably people will, they'll just kind of um, sometimes light up with a smile or sometimes start to weep with the memory that there was a point at which somebody said, you're good. Because it's the other thing we bring in there. I like to say at the beginning of each retreat is I say, no matter what's happened to us, no matter who's let us down, no matter what parent we've had, God will not relent in a constant pursuit of wanting to reveal that we're beloved, that we're beautiful, that we were made in goodness Mm -hmm. and in wholeness. Um, So. Wow. The images that came to mind as you were describing this process, first, I felt like it was like the process of restoration and um, through um, the image that came to mind was the resurrection, bringing people from life or from death into life Mm -hmm. um, or suffering death into life um, and renewal. And then also it's what's interesting is uh, the tangibility through this process because people are, are feeling they're seeing they're smelling they're they're igniting their senses and i think there's something about that that we're Mm -hmm. like remembering our humanity our uh the fundamental pieces of our dignity so i feel like there's like that restoration that people need it's interesting that also to the tap into the memory of i am good Mm -hmm. and so all these components i think are just are really um beautiful and I think necessary for, for all humans to experience. How do you get people to attend the retreat? Are people open to this process? You know, they are. It's mostly word of mouth. So, I mean, the whole reason we have JRJI here in the Northwest is kind of a, on the side. I'm a singer, a uh, singer-songwriter as an avocation. And a number of years ago, I was invited out to Monroe Correctional Complex with my bandmates to do a concert. 
And I had never been inside a prison before, been really engaged in retreats and spiritual ministry and nonprofits for years, but this was something brand new. And frankly, I, the sister at the time who was a chaplain and invited me, I thought she was a little crazy. I thought, didn't know much about people behind bars, but I certainly knew at a men's prison, none of them were going to look like me, gender, race, uh, any number of things. Um, my age, that I'm older probably than many. So I thought she was crazy. I kept thinking, sister, why would these folks want to hear? So um, it was when I was out there at Monroe that I met a lifer um, named Bill. I've been given permission to use his first name, who told me he'd been praying for an Ignatian retreat for years. And it was quite extraordinary, Samantha. I thought I was there for a once-off concert. And that in that moment, I felt like God placed a responsibility on my heart because who else was going to hear this right. cry? And it led to this odyssey, this kind of adventure and exploration of visiting JRJI in California and then networking with the province and pursuing bringing a similar program to the Northwest. So in the beginning, um, it was because of Bill's personal cry. And at the time when I talked with Father Scott Santorosa, who was the Jesuit provincial, he said, well, Let's give this a try. And my thought was, we really need to test. We know this is Bill's desire. Will it be anyone else's desire? So the way we recruit is I, I started attending Catholic services on a Friday evening at Monroe Correctional Complex. And all of the services behind bars, people are attending of multi-faiths and no faith. Because for people, when I say no faith background, everyone has some kind of believing in themselves or the world or having what I like to call ultimate questions. But um, people who are in pursuit of transformation are often attending many programs. And so even going to Catholic services on a Friday night, it doesn't mean I'm only meeting Catholics. So I started dialoguing with men there and then with the DOC, the Department of Corrections, with the staff chaplain there, who at first said to me, you know, Jennifer, I don't think you're going to be able to get people to come to this program, not more than five or six of the men who go to Catholic services. And we can't have a program and it's that small. He said, but, you know, the leadership among the Protestants in the yard, they're not going to, they're not going to want this program. So I thought to myself, hmm, what do I do? <laughs> so I talked to Bill and I said, I was a little nervous. What do I know about prison? But I said, do you think you can recruit some of the Protestant leaders from the yard to get on the call out and come to Catholic services on a Friday night and I'll meet with them? So it was uh, May of 2016, about a year after I first went in. and a small group of who were considered Protestant leaders from the yard came in and I talked with them about what the program would be like, asked them if they would be open to participating and to welcoming an interfaith program. And especially I was allaying their concerns that we had any desire to convert people to Catholicism. So they all grinned broadly and gave it a big thumbs up. So at our first retreat, we had 28 men. Wow. And then from there, it went to pretty quickly went to 60, trying wow. to get the maximum huh. sign up for each retreat. And then we expanded to other units at Monroe that was in a unit called the WSR. We went to SOU, to TRU, and then we were invited to Coyote Ridge Correctional Center um, in the Tri-Cities and then the pandemic struck. Mm. So we haven't been to Coyote Ridge, but I know we'll be going there. And I've just started to be in conversation with Clallam Bay. So it's wow. word of mouth. And it's largely if the people who come to the program find it, um, they believe in it. They have like barometers for authenticity and 
you know, what they might consider BS or any other number of things. If it passes the barometer inside, then that's the best recruiting possible. They'll, they'll bring in cellmates, people from the yard. Wow. That's incredible. I can't believe it's like word of mouth and, and just catching fire. (laughs) Well, not now because, you know, people can't meet like they want. Um, was it this encounter with Bill? Is that initially what are ultimately what drew you into this work? 100%. Um, and I thank Bill and I thank God. Um, I didn't see this one coming. I have a degree in theology from Seattle U uh, for many, many years ago, my BA. I've worked in various forms of ministry and with Larsh International for years. Um, and my heart of hearts has always think where I um, feel alive and most animated is experiencing the incredible gifts of our siblings in society, our kin in society who are being pushed aside, not listened to, not included, and they've been my greatest teachers. And so to find myself behind bars for this concert and to discover the incredible privilege of meeting the extraordinary people who are there and yeah, some who've done some pretty terrible things, but the people who come to our programming tend to be people who seek transformation. I would also mention people who've been over-incarcerated or unjustly, but you know, there's a wide range of people you meet. But I think Pope Francis said it well when he talked about, it could be me, you know, if the circumstances were different, it could have been me. Um, and I believe that fully. What if I was in 15 foster homes? What if I was raised by, you know, an addict parent? What if I um, experienced growing up in poverty in a gang-ridden neighborhood? What if I, I mean, how could I dare to say that I wouldn't be behind bars right now? I simply don't know. And so it's, yeah, I just, I just believe that love is the animating force of all of creation and of every human created and to have the privilege to um, go in as someone who's wanting to see how is that animating force seeking to be freed up and affirmed and empowered behind bars uh, is is a unique privilege. Hmm. Would you say that love, when you look at with uh, injustice in the world, particularly in our interwoven into our criminal justice system? Would you say that love is part of the antidote to injustice? Absolutely, because especially when they, I think for some people, they hear the word love and they think of something kind of squishy and sentimental right. and all about romance. And and that's not at all the kind of love um, I'm talking about. Um, I think love is courageous and long-suffering and sacrificial and animating and dynamic and creative. And, you know, it's really what Ignatian spirituality is all about, this very clear vision that Ignatius of Loyola had, being that God is love and love, love always expands and wants to create and give more and build more. And so, Um, in this Ignatian vision, you know, before all time, when there was this communion of love, it began spilling. And that I call it spilling anyways. And that spill became all of creation. I like to 
I'll start retreats by saying, you know, in Ignatian spirituality, every one of us in this room is a unique drop of that spill. Mm. Um, but in Ignatian spirituality, one of the things Ignatius noticed is what he called the pull and the counter pull. So if love is the most authentic animating force, what we call the pull of, of for those of us of faith, God's love or higher self, highest power, um, authentic self, there's a, there's a lot of counter pull in our society, greed and thirst for power and competition and uh, jealousy. And we can name any number. And of course, racism, fear, actually, which is at the heart of most of those other counter pulls. Um, and yeah, do the counter pulls in our world create immense injustice and suffering? Absolutely. Um, but I believe the animating and healing and transforming power of love is the only antidote to those things. I think it's because our world or culture doesn't understand love. Mm -hmm. We think it, like you said, romantic and not to, not to disparage that. But I think in this context, the way that you described these encounters particularly with this with these retreats that's more of this life giving sacrificial agape love that's present throughout the gospel like how jesus called peter like do you love me and he answered in the capacity that he was able to um respond to um but i think what our our call is that call to service of mm -hmm. foot washing, of sacrificing, of kind of seeing the other person fully? Yeah. You know, when, as you say this, I'm thinking about one of the sources of healing love I experience in my own life in a very concrete way when I'm suffering, when I'm really down. One of my favorite things is to get in the car with my husband Jerry and he drives and we can drive for hours silently. And um, maybe he'll reach over and pat my hand. Maybe we'll listen to music, but there's, it's like, we're just, he's, he's taking, we're driving along together and it's healing. And I think about it. It's like for folks behind bars, some of what we're doing is we're getting in the car and saying, I'm going, I'm going on this drive with you and I'll be here by your side. Um, we'll figure it out while you figure it out. I just want to sit in the car with you and go with you because we're connected because mm. we're we're kin. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we all need somebody to go along with us, go the distance and be with us when we don't know what to do or how to heal or, um, yeah, when we can't see our goodness. Mm, that's so vital. I think that's like true accompaniment. Yeah. Mm. and it's mutual that's the other thing mm. i haven't even talked about yet it's powerful right. mutual there's an incredible film i just saw this week called since i've been down if people can get their hands on it i'm not sure exactly how it's being released yet but it's about uh, an incredible person Kamanti carter and the correctional system in washington state and a program he founded called teach from inside he's still locked up um but that movie reflects my own experience that those of us who go inside, we truly do meet kin and we learn and we receive grace. Um, we receive blessing. I even think of, 
Have you ever had the experience, Samantha, of here on the outside, somebody refusing help or getting very brusque with you if you try to do something nice? Or Because if we really think about it, it can be hard to, to be on the receiving end. Absolutely. It can, it, you know, it, it can be very humiliating or it can, you know, there's a variety. But when I think, wow, when we go in there and people are so receptive that anybody would open up to us. I can think of gentlemen that when I arrived who immediately rushed to get me a glass of water, hmm. who, if I'm carrying too many things, grab my bags, who um, see even the music. The first concert I did, um, there was a gentleman there who was one of the leaders behind bars. I think he's out now and become a pastor. And he did something I never experienced before. There was, he had asked me before the concert started, Jennifer, is it okay if I lead a prayer halfway through? And I was like, of course. And I was meeting him for the first time. So we took an intermission and he gets up on stage and he led this prayer that went through almost every song I sang and he utilized it and wove scripture together with it and talked about what I sang about. And these are songs that I've sometimes sung outside and people might enjoy the tune or something, but they never really noticed what the song was about. So this quality of attention and honoring that can happen between people is remarkable. So it's powerfully mutual. And we have so much to learn um, from people who are behind bars. Mm. Yeah, that mutuality and mutual space is like really important because I think that's where like the where the equal footing that we might lack in our society, especially in the in this um position, because there is a power dynamic there. You might be stepping in and there there might be um either I think in any relationship there is a chance for, you know, power, privilege, these things that we've either been socially conditioned or we've stepped into into our society. And I think with this when we open up a space for mutuality, that's like an equalizer. Yes. You will. Yeah. Samantha, did you ever know Father Peter Ely? He was a Jesuit at Seattle University. He passed away really suddenly. I only year. heard your stories. <laughs> uh, I should just mention, you know, he was 82 year old Jesuit, <clears throat> dear, dear man, who had um, told me he really wanted to become part of the team and come in occasionally with JRJI. And it's wonderful to be able to bring a priest sometimes because for those who are Catholic, they just don't receive sacraments as often as they'd like. And, but actually all of the men, whether they're Catholic or not, they seem to get a real thrill out of having an experience with ordained clergy of any kind. So anyways, Father Peter, 82 years old, goes through all the training he has to go through in, in order to come in. And it was his very first retreat with us. And we were in a small group that went very, very deep that day. Um, the men in the group, for whatever reason, even more than usual, were talking about stories of, of abuse in their childhood and any number of things, anger management. And when it was our last go round, when I talked about how we do three rounds and then the, the third round, when we were sharing some of the graces of listening to one another, Father Peter started to cry when it was his turn and it totally surprised me. And he talked about how moved he was by the level of authenticity, by the support the men showed for one another by their honesty about their struggles. And he just wept and wept and said, I can't wait to come back and be with you again. And what was so beautiful was one of the gentlemen, the man who was next to him reached out a shaky hand because he has neurological damage and it took great effort. And he put a hand on father Peter's shoulder after as father Peter wept. And he said, Oh, bless you, father, bless your heart, bless you. And then all the men in the group raised their hands and said, yes, bless you, father. 
And so exactly two months later, he collapsed at the end of a walk and he, and he died in the spot where he fell. And I will carry that with me for the rest of my life. The realization that Father Peter probably received a final blessing um, before going home, um, received it from a group of men in a little retreat behind bars. And that in the experience of being able to be the ones to confer the blessing, that there was an incredible dignity that afforded Mm -hmm. that group of men. And in turn, Father Peter blessed them by seeing their remarkable and irreplaceable value. Mm, That's such a beautiful story. Um, It's interesting when we step into these spaces expecting, like I used to work bed homeless shelter, all male homeless shelter. And I also worked in recovery homes and I worked in um, transitional housing as well, Uh, mostly male. And um, I had this, idea about myself when I stepped into this space that I was the one serving because mm-hmm. that was the title that I was like, you know, direct service pers- personnel or, or aid, or I for- forgot what they gave me at the time. Um, but they ended up, I remember one night, um, they were waiting for me to come and they were like, uh, my shift hadn't started yet, but they were like, Oh, it's almost dinner. Samantha's coming. And, um, it was time for me to serve chili to the men and they like couldn't wait because they were like it's a social time for themselves with the with their group but they also because they got to know me through me coming I would come regularly my shift was so usually the dinner shift they got to know me and we're like oh it's time for Samantha to come (laughs) and I was like serving chili one night and I was waiting it was like this trans transition where I was like waiting for payday and I was like so broke and and oddly enough after I served the men they gave me a bowl of chili Mm. and they were like you seem hungry here's a bowl of chili (laughs) and I was being nourished in a way that I like in more ways than one Mm. where I was like it was humbling in the sense that thought that I was the one being served like I thought or serving and then I was the one Mm. being served and it was like blessing them to bless me and that was like the strangest moment of my life when I thought like Mm. I'm putting on this role and they're the ones blessing me I love it I love it what strikes me strikes me with that story is that you were seen um and I almost forgot about that how much I feel that a the at the heart of our program is a mission to be seers mm-hmm. um, and to see people who've far too often been unseen um, and probably are so used to being unseen they don't even ask for it but it's interesting with the enter program with the women um, I was asked to create a program for Kent Regional Justice Center that was not religious which is great I mean I love that JRJI has is starting to have robust programming that's some that's explicitly retreat based and the enter program, which is really a program of ex- self-exploration that's not um, religious based. I feel like I had to use my detective skills to create an Ignatian <laughs> program without it being explicitly religious. But that's what I feel like I'm doing there when I, I sit across from the women and I feel like my detective work is to pay keen attention and see. And especially see those moments of their beautiful, authentic self showing up Mm -hmm. in ways they have not seen themselves. And then to simply hold that, hold up a mirror 
It's also interesting since it's a non-religious program. And I think of five women I've been working with so far, four have started talking about God. So we end up in, in that area anyways, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm blown away by what, what the women haven't seen about themselves that seems so abundantly apparent when you pay attention um, just incredible amounts of beauty and resilience and goodness there. Mm. Before you entered into this work, was there a moment of draw into justice work or was there a moment in your life where I guess a transformative moment that for you that um, made you think I should be doing some form of prison ministry or, or justice ministry or ministry in general. So, yes. And um, it's interesting though. It goes right back to my earliest childhood. And for two of my main ministry calls in life, there were little foreshadowings that I didn't Mm -hmm. know, but I'm originally from Boston area. Um, First generation. I was the first to go to college, graduate from college with my family. My mom said shoe factory workers and, um, my dad said Irish and, um, his dad did architecture, but then wasn't in college. And anyways, my dad was in the second world war, but the Irish side of the family classically had that, um, great compassion for the underdog, which is typical mm. for the Irish. <laughs> and I was raised with that with my dad. And it's funny, anyone who knew him, if anyone's listening and they knew my dad, they'll laugh at this. He was a person who actually kind of lectured a lot and had a lot of opinions, but, and I did learn from those somewhat, but more, I learned from what he did. And he was always popping into McDonald's, for example, when we were in downtown Boston to grab some food and give the food to homeless people. Or um, we used to drive through, he would drive us through the worst sections of Boston um, that were between where we lived, very blue collar, but where we lived in downtown. And he would sometimes get off the freeway and drive the areas that other people considered unsafe. And he would simply say to us, I want you to see this, you know, and to know that this is how some people are living. And um, so he very much believed in actively engaging in the world and caring for one another. So here's interesting. So the the earliest memory, Tony, you asked this question because I was thinking about it yesterday. We used to go, if anyone's from Boston, they'll know we used to take the T, the train in town and go to Ash Street. Ash Street was uh, St. Anthony's Shrine was on Arch Street. That was my old accent. And they had um, a chapel on two floors and Bostonians call it getting mass. If you went in to go shopping on a Saturday or Sunday, you could get mass on the half hour and you really didn't even need to plan. You could, the family, we'd be in town doing our thing. And then we'd just walk over to Ash Street and go to mass. So I was uh, somewhere just before five years old and we were at Mass at St. Anthony's at a Franciscan Parish. And I've never, I never forgot that the Franciscan that was preaching gospelist Beatitudes, I have no memory of what he said, but what he said caused a burning in my heart. Hmm. I like to say I kind of fell in love with Jesus in that moment. And I don't mean, again, that ooey-gooey, like, <laughs> sentimental love. I mean, yeah. this incredible sense of who this man and his compassion and his engagement in the world. And I remember thinking, I want to follow him. Very same day, we mass finished and we were leaving and we were coming down some front steps. And there was a beggar at the bottom of the steps. 
And what also was unforgettable is I'd never seen a native person at that point yet. There weren't a lot of Hmm. native people walking around downtown Boston and he was native and he had a red bandana tied around his head and he had a cup. And as we were coming down the stairs, people were making a wide berth around him. And I pulled Hmm. and pulled on my dad's coat. And I remember being really disturbed and upset. And I was putting together the words that caused the burning in my heart. And then this thing that was happening after church that didn't seem to match. So I really believe my vocation was born in that moment. And it wasn't, it would kind of rise and fall in consciousness. But the two other things, um, as a little girl, we used to drive by Walpole State Prison, sometimes on the freeway in the Boston area. And I remember looking at it and wondering, just wondering who's there? What's it like? What are they like? And the other thing was when I was a little girl, I remember um, volunteering in middle school at an institution for people with developmental disabilities. Mm. And then I ended up spending many years in Larsh. And so I often look back at those kind of three seminal moments. Mm. But in um, from teenage years, then I cared very much about justice. So in, in college, I got involved in the Coalition for Human Concern at Seattle U. And like you, working with homeless, that's where I met my husband at the Catholic mm. Worker Kitchen. And so it's been a life's journey, but I really didn't see this coming per se at all. So it was a, a wonderful, blessed surprise in a way that, yeah, never saw coming. Wow. It's not how it always goes. You never see these these works of the spirit coming for your no. life. No, no, you don't. It's quite amazing. I, I always tease my husband. I was like, yeah, I want to marry someone really tall and <laughs> that's what I said. I don't know why I thought that as a teenager, it was a girly thing. And I think my it's infor- about- reinforcing women a lot. Yeah. It was like, yeah, and it was, uh, he's about two inches taller than I am. And neither one of us is tall by a long stretch of the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> what is a hope or a dream or a desire that you have for your current work or mm-hmm. even the system and with in which your work is housed. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, you know, there's a paradox at the heart of JRJI. And I received, again, this grace from learning from Father Mike Kennedy and his team. And that is, there are real individual people locked up behind bars. And each one of them, to me is, is, is like a sacred, they were made in the image and likeness of God in my, my belief. And so there's something very particular and important about going behind the walls and bringing hope, receiving hope, because we're not the only ones who bring, like sh- exchanging hope and opportunity and transformational experiences. That seems so important. But there's also the bigger issues, the systemic issues in our society that have resulted in a really toxic incarceration system with many problems, with many unjust laws, and everything in between. And so I like to say there's a microcosm and a macrocosm, and JRJI needs to be engaged with both. And so up until this year, I've been a staff of one, and I now have very part-time help. Um, And we are a work of Jesuits West Province that will one day be an independent 501c3. But looking into the future in order to have the kind of robust programming and engagement that includes really being present to real people um, in the darkest of situations, 
all the way to maximum security to working on public policy advocacy and law. Um, there's a lot of fundraising <laughs> that needs to happen and growing of the organization. And I just have to, I'm constantly reminding myself um, that really in many ways, this is God's work and it's a work of the province. It's a work of a multitude of people. I am blessed to have this small place in it and to trust that as we keep moving forward, um, the graces and gifts that we need and the resources we need will keep gradually arriving because we've already grown and had more programming than I ever thought possible when I started this. So I just have to trust um, in the baby steps. Mm, trust on the baby steps. Yeah. Hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is there um, some kind of actionable step that we can take that, or something that we should be doing to support this mission? Sure. I mean, one thing is um, I have developed, we have an advisory board that just began. We'll have our third meeting this month. So um, we're slowly getting more scaffolding in place. So one of the things that will happen somewhere in the next six or eight months is we'll finally get a website up and running, which we have a page on the Jesuits West province website. But what I would say, if anybody wants more information or would like to become part of our monthly e-newsletter, where we just send out one e-newsletter a month with a few stories and, you know, what we're doing and ways people can get involved, you could email jrjinw at jesuits.org and request being put on the e-news. We'd be delighted to do that. And I didn't mention that we have a letter writing program called Blessed and Beloved. People could correspond with somebody behind bars. So... Yes, please reach out by email and if you're interested in the e-newsletter or have any questions. Oh, fabulous. Thank you, Jennifer, for all of this, all the sharing. Thanks for having me, Samantha. It's uh, been good talking with you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening today. If you would like to hear more content like this, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Podbean. You can hit Justice Rising Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center and also follow us on Instagram at IPJC Seattle. And thank you so much for being part of our first season of the Justice Rising podcast. Without your support, we wouldn't have a podcast. We will be starting our second season in the beginning of 2022. So from all of us at IPJC, we like to wish you and your family and friends a happy holiday season and blessings in the new year. Don't forget to tune in for season two in early 2022. Look out for promotion on social media and on our website.